I've been looking forward to sharing this message with you. It's a very personal message for me. It's also a message of hope, of strength, of encouragement, and of things that seem one way, but they're really the other. We look in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're looking at verses 1 and verse 2. In our Old Testament, and it's a couple of books past the Psalms, if you're looking for it. And we begin there in chapter 11 at verse 1. These are the words of the King Solomon. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Amen. I've seen people who are happy, and I've seen people who are not so happy. Work with a lot of folks who forgot how to be that way, lost something, and invariably, in each of those situations, there's one thing. One thing missing that you couldn't tell by looking, other than happiness, but something in their life that wasn't there. And, and they couldn't figure it out. And they, you know, even people who have great amount of possessions and own a lot of things can have this missing. No matter what you own, you can have it missing. And you say, well, if, if I have everything, then what would be missing, Correct. Well, sometimes we look at our lives and we say, what makes me truly happy? What makes me thankful? Today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what change in our lives happens when God comes in. And and it's not something that I think is real difficult to understand. It's not something where you have to... Like, dig deep. It's a very, very simple concept. So I'm going to keep it real simple today, but I'm going to share with you this very true statement. That the Word of God is true, that Scripture cannot be broken, and that what God sends forth in His Word will not return empty. It says in our Scriptures, God's Word never returns void. God's Word never comes back without doing what He sent for it to do. Jesus even spoke uh, several occasions about this is the Scripture which cannot be broken so it must be fulfilled. Scripture is being fulfilled in our lives especially when we walk according to the precepts, the principles, and the promises of God. Amen? Amen. God works through that, right? And so we want God to do what He intends for Himself to do with His Word in us. And we have a part in that. A lot of us think that happiness comes from possessing things. Some people think that happiness comes just as a state of mind or a a lack of any strife or stress or struggle, but that's not where it comes from. Jesus talks about a man in the New Testament who had a lot of possessions. And that man said, 
well, I've got so much grain coming in in this harvest, I'm going to build bigger barns and storehouses to put all of it in. And so he requisitioned those to be built. And Jesus said, this man was a fool because the Creator came and said, your life is demanded of you this very day. Now what happens to your bigger barns? What happens to all your stuff? I I don't know about you, but I, I think there's a common principle around that if you have a storage building, it generally ends up full. And so you need something else to put stuff in, and so you get some other thing to put the storage stuff in, and it fills up. And now the first one isn't empty, it's still full, now the next one is. And you go, ah, I need another storage thing. You ever find that concept to be true? That as much storage space as you have is what you'll put stuff in. I remember when I used to live in a single dorm room, two single beds, shared it with a guy, and all the stuff I possessed fit on half of the room and fit in a Volkswagen Rabbit. I can't even fit my furniture, let alone all the stuff I own in a Volkswagen Rabbit, and most of it were stereo stuff. Records and speakers and the equipment to listen to that stuff. Didn't have much else. Some clothes, but now I don't think all the clothes and stuff that takes care of a daily or weekly life would fit in that little car anymore. Well, I know it wouldn't. But is that because I needed more stuff? Or is it because when I moved from there, I moved into a three-bedroom or three-room apartment and I had to have some stuff? Well, obviously, I didn't have much furniture in that furnished apartment. All it had was a refrigerator, a stove, a bathroom with, you know, bathroom stuff in it, and, um, and a kitchen table, and that was it. Well, I needed stuff. I had a TV, so I needed something to put it on. I needed a bed. I needed a couch. I needed stuff to make it look like someone lived there. So when I first went to seminary to live in that apartment, I went yard sailing. Keith, you would have been proud of me. I lived in Dayton, Ohio, and I hit all the yard sales that were there that day, and I furnished my entire apartment for a hundred bucks. That's pretty good, except for back then, a hundred bucks is more like a thousand now. That's I'm saying how long ago it was, but it's been a while. And uh, all that stuff, then, when I moved away from there, I owned a pickup. It didn't fit in the pickup. I had to rent a U-Haul trailer to pull behind my pickup to move my stuff to another place that was mostly furnished. This was a two-bedroom uh, two, house in Chicago where I went from there and uh, I didn't have enough stuff. So when I moved from there a year later, guess what? A bigger trailer. Where I moved to another three-bedroom house, I didn't have to get more stuff. From there I moved to another three-bedroom house that was completely furnished with furniture and I had to get rid of stuff. But what I'm trying to say is that when we acquire things and make our lives look more like home, we get attached to those things and we don't want to let go so quick. Those things that matter to us then become personal effects, knickknacks, artifacts, things that connect us to pieces and parts of our life that mean something to us, that, that give us a a sense of attachment to them. 
reminders, if you will. I still have something from when my son was about three. One of my, well, they were both three, but a little motorcycle that he didn't break. My other son broke his, but he had left it at my house one time, and I put it up on a shelf, and he forgot about it, and I still have it. It's in perfect shape, a little toy motorcycle. And that connects me to when he was three and him playing with that. I still remember them running those all around the house with those. And it connects me to those moments. So those knickknacks are things that remind me of a time in life that matter. Sometimes what matters in our life that we keep reminders of isn't so important. Or, shall we say, isn't so happy of a time, but we still keep them. The reason I say all this is because we get the mindset that things connect us. That things can bring us a certain emotion or feeling or state of life that matters. Once that happens, we don't get enough stuff. In this world, what we find is that's the world's economy. That what we have matters. In the kingdom of God, it's backwards. In the kingdom of God, it's what you give matters. Not what you keep, what you give. Because I can't make a difference in this world by keeping stuff. How can I bless someone if I'm only blessing me, right? What is that all about, right? That's self-interest, self-centeredness, and it's said in the Scripture very clearly that a person who focuses on themselves and themselves alone will wind up desperate, broken, and lost. Sometimes they call that kind of a person a wicked or a slothful person because they're only interested in their own things, in their own life. But now, I won't say that there isn't a time when we have to think about certain things like our health and taking care of stuff, but I'm not talking about that. There are responsibilities that we have to ourselves and to our families. This is not about that. This is talking about that that is our only focus and never do we share or give. You know, in kindergarten, we had this rule. I don't know if y'all had this rule, but we did, and it was this. Share and share alike. Share. Let everybody play with stuff. Don't hoard it all. So everybody got to share all the toys in the classroom. Nothing was belonged to anybody, and if someone wanted to play with something, you couldn't tell them no because it wasn't yours to tell them no. As we got older, though, that rule went out the window. There wasn't, you need to play with your friends nicely. Share. By the time we were in high school, that was a distant memory. But what I learned, and what school and this world taught me, is that there are certain things that are not allowed for me to have, and certain things of mine you're not allowed to have, because they're mine or they're yours. And nary ever will it be changed hands. Yet, God sees things differently. He says if you throw your bread on the water, it's going to come back. If He gives out His Word and His promise, it's going to do what it's supposed to do. Now I began to think about throwing your bread on the water like this verse says in verse 1 in chapter 11 Ecclesiastes. And I thought, well, you know, 
I've thrown bread on the water before. It didn't come back. As a matter of fact, fish would eat it. And if you go to Noble Park in Paducah, the ducks and the geese will eat it. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You're not going to get your bread back if you throw it on the water. And I said, this must be a metaphor. It means something other than what it says. It doesn't mean you take your loaf of bread, throw it out in the sea, and a couple days later or a season later, that loaf of bread's going to come floating back. It doesn't mean that at all. The bread that this is talking about is sustenance. Something that is valuable to you. And the water is, if you will, life. The flow of life. Almost like the water of life flows from the kingdom of God. It's referring to throw your what matters to you into the flow of God's kingdom. The living water that Jesus says will come out of your belly. Throw it into that. Let it flow out around you. And that will come back to you. And I thought, wait a minute. A river flows one direction. How is a river going to bring something back to me? And it's again, circular, uncorrect logic. What it's saying is, when you give something away under grace and mercy for the intent of the kingdom, the kingdom will provide for you the same or better later when you need it. Not in that moment, necessarily, but when you need it. Jesus said it like this, the same measure which which you measure out will come back to you. So if you measure out a little, a little will come back. But it won't come back from you. That's what I like about this promise. It says the sustenance you put out there will come back to you, but it's not coming back from yourself and your own sustenance. It's coming back from God. Now listen to this. What if you give God maybe 5% of your life? Well, God's going to give you back 5% of His. I don't know what that looks like, but 5% of God must be a lot. I don't know. But what if you gave 100% of who you are into the hands of God and threw yourself into God's mercy and grace like that? Scripture says He's going to give you all He has to you. And he has a whole lot more resources than we do, doesn't he? Sure he does. There's a story circulated, and I've never been able to verify it. I tried to verify. I know parts of it are true, but about a man they called Old Ed. Old Ed... You could see him on a late Friday evening about sundown walking along the beach with a bucket in his hand. And old Ed would walk along the beach, walk out to the dock, and begin to look at the sunset. Shortly thereafter, a flock of seagulls would start to appear on the horizon and start coming to where he was. And as they got closer, out of his bucket he would pull shrimp and began to feed the seagulls that had come in. And he was heard saying thank you to each of them. Now, people who had watched this would think he was a little bit crazy if they didn't know who he was. But as he would sit there for a half an hour or so throwing out this shrimp, 
His bucket would be empty and the birds would still stay around him expecting more. And he would just stay there for a while and be filled with a smile on his face. He'd get up after he was done throwing it around, this, the trip around, and, and start walking back down the dock and some of the birds would hang around him for a while. Some of them would land on his hat and he wouldn't shoot them off. And people who had watched this didn't know him thought, well, that old codger, he just doesn't know what's going on. But if they knew the true story, and maybe you've heard this story, but a man named Eddie Rickenberger was the founder, or one of the chief executive officers of Eastern Airlines. But he also was a military pilot in World War I and World War II. As a matter of fact, he was important enough that the president had hand-delivered him a message to take to General MacArthur talking about some things that the president was not real happy about MacArthur's attitude. And he trusted this man, Eddie Rickenbacker, to get him that message. And he put him in an old B-17. I think it was a B-17. But it was in not too good a shape. And sent him out across from Hawaii, out across the Pacific to uh, MacArthur. But the plane on takeoff, its compass mechanism a navigation system in this older plane jammed. And they got a couple hundred miles off course and had to ditch the plane. Anybody heard this story besides me and my wife? When he ditched the plane, seven other crewmen ditched with him. And they went down thousands of miles from anywhere in the south central Pacific Ocean. They had a raft that they began to float praying that someone would find them. But that's not the normal place where that plane was supposed to fly and not a shipping yard or a shipping route that was normal. And they all thought they were going to die. After eight days on the water, they decided to pray. None of these at the time were believers. None of them. But they thought, well, we might as well pray. <laughs> Ask for a miracle from God. Isn't that what we do when we really don't know God? We think God's just going to help us with a miracle because that's what God does. He's a miracle. He's not a day-to-day God. He's a miracle God. He's an in-trouble God. God's a 911 God for non-believers. As they say, no atheists in foxholes. These guys were in a mess. All about dehydrated, hungry. And they prayed for a miracle. And it says that Eddie had his hat on. And he pulled it down over his head and laying there, he felt something on his head. And after a while, he discerned that it was a seagull. Now, this seagull was several hundred miles from land. No reason that thing should have been there. Not at all. And he slowly moved his hand gradually and captured it. And they ate that seagull and used parts of it for bait to capture fish and to eat. It saved their lives. It was 24 days they were in that raft before they were rescued. Because of that one bird, they made it. And so every Friday, he walks along the beach. This, he, he ended up uh, dying at age 92. He'd walk along the beach of that dock and he would say thank you to those seagulls for the one that saved his life. And he wanted to give something back to them out of the life that he had. Now, 
I'm not a seagull. I've been called a seagull before, believe it or not. Did you know that? Y'all probably don't remember the book, but they used to call me Jonathan Livingston Seagull. But I'm not a seagull. I'm not even the guy in that book. But you're not a seagull either. But if you had an opportunity to save eight lives, would you have landed on that man's hat? Or just said, no, I'm going to keep flying, trying to find land and die on the process. i got to tell you this, we're all going to die one day. Maybe we'll save a life along the way. And it'll be worth it if we do. But I believe this seagull, if, if, if it was us and we had this choice, you're going to fly another 200 miles to find land and you're not going to make it, you're going to die. Or you can land on this guy's hat, rest, and give your life to save his. Either way, you're going to die. But this way you get to choose. With honor or out of desperation. I don't know about you, but I pray that you would have said, I'll take the hat. I'll make my life count. So, years go by. And he's constantly thanking. Seagull after seagull. Thank you. Thank you. Now, what is it that would make a man do that? Is it because he's crazy? Is it because he likes to feed shrimp to birds? Is it because he likes to spend hundreds of dollars every year on this shrimp? Or do you think maybe he's casting his bread on the water? Think about that a second. He said thank you as he did it. The one thing that's missing in life for people who are not happy is the ability to be thankful enough to give something away. In gratitude. Gratitude is the one thing missing in unhappy people's lives. They're not thankful, truly, for what's been done or for what they have or who they are. I don't know about you, but I deserved the place on the cross where Jesus died. These are my scars that are in His hands and in His feet. I was guilty as charged for sin. Scripture says each of us were guilty as charged and no one has fallen short uh, of not sinning. We have all sinned and fallen short of the grace of God. All of us. God's Word is true. We are all sinners. We all need grace. And Jesus Christ is the embodiment of grace on the cross saying, I am doing this for you. I am casting my bread on the water. I'm giving myself now for you so you don't have to go through this. If this is true to you, and it's very real in your heart and mind, you're not thinking that was a nice gesture. I appreciate it. You're not going, that was a good thing to do. You're saying, thank you. Thank you. I needed that. That was my place you took. Thank you. 
He saved my life. What can I do to show you how much I appreciate that? How much it means to me? And all He says is let someone else know what I've done for you. That's it. Be thankful enough to share it. If it's real, you won't have a problem talking about it. You might say, well, I I don't know if I can do that. Well, did not most of us this morning have a few words to say about the weather? If you were out in it yesterday working in it or trying to breathe in that humidity yesterday, you don't have a problem telling someone, man, I was in there, it was hot, it was muggy, and it was tough. I was out in there after about six and I still poured sweat. So much so I didn't even want to be around myself. You know, that's how bad it was. Truly. But that's real. And I'll tell you that. And if Jesus Christ is just as real to me and I experienced it the same way as real, I'm going to talk about it the same way I would have that experience yesterday. But Jesus Christ is even more real than that. And that sharing of that is giving it away. What we've learned, my wife and I have learned over several years working with Celebrate Recovering folks who have issues, struggles. In Celebrate Recovery, a lot of folks think it's about alcohol and drugs. It's not. 65% of the folks there are there for depression, lack of trust, anger, loneliness, other types of addiction, um, codependency, you name it, loss. You can think of a thousand things you can struggle with, and most of those things are there. And what we found is something that really is amazing. That nobody trusts anybody when they walk in that door with their struggle until they know that person's had the same struggle. How could I ever expect someone to understand what I've been through unless they've been through it also? Right? Scripture says Jesus Christ is acquainted with the feelings of our weakness or our infirmities or our brokenness because He was in at every point tempted and struggled the same way we did, but He did so without sin. So He knows how to overcome it. But he also knows what it feels like to have those things in life that make us struggle. Now get this. You might say, God, you don't understand. Pastor, you don't understand what I've been through and what my life's all about. You don't get how I feel. But what you feel is actually the pain of your healing getting ready to start when it hurts. And I say this, that this isn't just for you. This is not a self-centered faith. God's going to heal you and you're going to know you're healed because it's gone. The pain will be gone. And when it's gone, you're going to say, God did that. Because it's gone. I don't know how He did it, but He did it. He set me free from this. He helped me. And if He helped me, I don't know why He did, but if He can help me, I know He can help you. Sometimes we believe enough for somebody else to tell them. 
There's a man told a story, and it just shocked me how candid he was. But get this. In the military, 16 years, alcohol, immorality, you name it, contracting HIV from one of the many people he had been with, ready to die, depressed, broken, couldn't find what he was looking for, came home to die, and he went to church and found Jesus, began to grow, began to share his story, how God found him, how God was beginning to restore him. Now, catch these criteria. HIV positive. Alcoholic. Perverse in most of the ways you don't want someone to be perverse. Adultery included. And after a couple years, the church he was going to knew all about it and asked him one thing. Do you know what it was? Do you think it was when they found out he was HIV positive that they, they thought maybe he should wear gloves? Do you think maybe they might have asked him to leave? After all, you know, he's one of those people. Here's what they asked him. And here's how they said it. There's not a struggle on the earth that I can think of that we as a church can think of that you haven't been through and you know God can work through them. You're a man of faith. Not only do we want to know how God did that, but we trust you to be our pastor. How many churches do you know of if someone walked through the door and said, I'm HIV positive, hey, will you be our pastor? They wouldn't even want to shake his hand. This man, when he told that, I said, if he can use him, he can use me. There's no qualification there. And if he can throw that out on the water, his pain, that's all he's got. And God can bring it back to him for healing for others. That's a good thing. He's thrown it into the mercy of God's river. And God's bringing it back to heal others. And that becomes his message. Not I'm good. God is. I'm not holy. God is. And if He can do it for me, He can do it for you. That's putting the bread on the water. And after a while, it will come back to you. Because there will be a time, sooner or later, where you're hurting, and someone will come up to you and say, I know you believe in God, but I just felt compelled to pray for you and help you in this way. And it'll just happen. And you'll say, thank you. I needed that now. And you'll add it. That compassion you got in return to the list of things God's done for you. What we have a problem with is hanging on too tight to stuff. We need to learn to let it go. 
Do you remember the parable of the sower? And this is how I want to close this message. Do you remember the parable of the sower, how it said he, the sower went out to sow and he threw seed and some landed on good ground, some on bad, some on soil that was rocky and some on the path. And it's, it, I want to give you the image of what a sower looks like. Um, it's kind of like a broadcast spreader, Hubert. It's where he takes a bag that he's carrying and he, and he flings the seed out like this. Now that seed doesn't come cheap. It's not free. It's a part of his sustenance. And every seed that grows is going to provide a crop if it grows right to carry on the life cycle. But it's the sower does the broadcast method as he goes. He's casting the seed everywhere. And where it lands on the best soil, it produces great fruit. There's some soil it lands on that it gets washed away. There's some that it gets choked out by the cares of the world and the birds eat it. That's a part of the process. But that doesn't stop him from throwing the seed out. This is what casting your bread on the water looks like. That you put it out there. And you keep putting your story out there of what God's done for you. It's going to land somewhere on good ground because God's Word will go where it needs to go. It doesn't say God's Word will go out and do everything for everybody. It says it will go out and do what God intended it to do. Not what you wanted it to do, but what God wants it to do. So He says... And I used to think that this verse is all about the verse 1 in chapter 11 where it says, throw it on after many days you'll find it. But listen to this. Verse 2 tells me the answer. Give a serving to seven or eight. For you don't know what evil's going to be on the earth and you also don't know what good's going to be there or where that seed's going to grow. So just let it go. Don't hold on too tight. Be thankful enough to share what God's done for you. If He's blessed you with a bunch, throw it out there. Even a little. It doesn't have to be one particular thing. He's not talking about bread. He's talking about what God has blessed you with. Whatever that might be. One example. Some people believe they don't have a whole lot to offer God, but I believe everybody here does. And Bob, when you came up here and you sang, and when you offered your karaoke and things like that, uh, Charlie, when you did, and uh, Robert, when you were gracious enough to be uh, a tool in God's hands, all of us know we can't do that. There's some of us, I'm one of them, I would not work in all that ivy. I wouldn't do that for hours and hours and hours out of love for God. I would be too hot and sweaty. I just couldn't do it. But Charlie's tireless doing it. That's bread on the water. It inspires people. Bob, your singing, your blessing, your heart inspires people. Robert, your willingness inspires people to say, well, if he can, I can. Whatever it is. Sometimes it's time. Sometimes it's holding a hand. Sometimes it's a financial gift. Some of us have that ability. But God has given us all a measure. And the measure which we have been given, if we just meet it out, 
God will bless us back with more. This world says you've got to hold on to it and save it for retirement. Got to protect yourself. But Scripture says nowhere retirement. The word retirement is not in Scripture. When do you stop loving people? Not supposed to ever, are you? So is our retirement about what we need for us or is it enough to bless others? What do we think about when retirement? When I retire, I'm going to live nice. Well, are you going to bless people with your retirement? Did you think about that part? This is how the world will tell you it's all about you. God says, put it out there on the water and He will make it about you when you make it about Him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your economy is so mixed up compared to this world. This world says if you want something, you've got to hang on to it. Lock it up. Put security systems on it or other people are going to try to take it. But Heavenly Father, there's no way this world can stop someone who wants to give. And so I'm asking you to give us hearts of thankfulness and gratitude for what you've done for us so that we continue to pour out and love and give and let it go. Don't let us hang on too tightly to anything but you. Heavenly Father, as your great hymn says, I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay them down. Until I do, I'm going to cling to the old rugged cross and exchange those trophies for the crown. Heavenly Father, May we learn to let those trophies go and you be our only prize. Amen.